He's risen. He is risen indeed. Yes, he has. Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day. If you're a guest with us, thank you for being here. As Jacob said, my name is Jace. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are delighted to have you with us. Uh, I will never get tired of saying that this church is not a museum for perfected saints. Uh, you may look around and be tempted to think these folks have got it together. I mean, some of them are dressed up nice, and uh, the pastor's wearing a jacket, and they have a violin on the stage, and these families look all put together. Uh, emphatically, we are not all put together, okay? We, we may look it, we may put on a good show, but uh, the reality is uh, we are a community, a church, not of perfected saints, but we are a hospital for the needy. We are a hospital for the broken. We are a hospital for the sin sick. Jesus taught us that those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. And so we are a community that confesses that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus is our Savior. And we hope that if you do not know him, you come to know him today. Over the past few weeks, we have been doing a sermon series on the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And today we are going to consider and celebrate the doctrine of the incarnation. Just kidding. The resurrection, of course. What else would we do? So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you're taking notes, the sermon title is Christ the First Fruits. Children, there's your word. The First Fruits of the Resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26. Please follow along here as I read. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you, unless you believed in vain. <clears throat> For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been risen. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that gave it. We pray that he would be with us today, and that your word would be alive and active in our midst, and we as a result would be alive and active towards you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historic fact. It is a historic fact that is exceedingly well proven. The point made in our passage by the Apostle Paul is that our Lord appeared many times and showed himself to numerous companies. We are told, beginning in verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. This is not an exhaustive list. There were others to whom Christ showed himself as well. The Marys, for instance, the disciples journeying to Emmaus, all those gathered at his ascension, and many others besides. But Paul's point here is that the resurrection of Jesus is grounded in the eyewitness account of hundreds of men and women, most of whom, when this was written, were still alive, as if Paul were saying, go talk to them. Go interview them. There are are hundreds of eyewitness accounts. If you're doubting this, it can be established as a fact by eyewitness. In fact, so clear is the historical evidence, this just being one of the evidences, there are many evidences, but so clear is the historical evidence of Christ's resurrection that many an unbelieving critic committing to objectively weighing the evidence has been so startled by the abundant witness to the truth of this fact that they have repented of their unbelief and converted to Christianity. Uh, Take, for instance, the account of Lord Darling, former Chief Justice of England, uh, which, by the way, I think we should bring titles into the United States of America because I think it's fun to be called Lord, Lord Darling, which also I think sounds like a name from a book in like a Jane Austen novel or something. Lord Darling, he sounds like he, he should be falling in love with someone. Um, he would be the rich man who does not know that she's the better woman and he should give up everything because they all go pretty much the same way. 
But that's another sermon. So anyway, Lord Darling, Chief Justice of England, uh, a man obviously trained to to sift through evidence, um, having done so with the resurrection, declared, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. Jesus' resurrection is exceedingly well-proven. It is a truth beyond all controversy. And what a comfort to know that the ground of our faith, the very foundation of all our hope, stands most secure. Jesus' resurrection is a fact, as Paul asserts in verse 20. It is a fact, and it is a fact that this church in Corinth believed in. Verse 11, he says, This is what I preached. And you believed. I preached it. The apostles preached it. Whether it was I or they, you heard it and you believed. So this church believed in Jesus' resurrection. But some had come to believe that while Jesus physically rose from the dead, uh, they believed that others, Christians, would not. Some had come to believe in this church, according to verse 12, that there was no future physical resurrection for Christians. And so Paul responds to this by explaining not just the significance of Jesus' resurrection, but also how his resurrection is vitally connected to our resurrection. The two are united. His past resurrection and our future resurrection are vitally connected. And so first he says in verses 13 and 14, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, no future bodily resurrection of dead Christians, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So he says Christ's resurrection and ours goes hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. We so are united to Jesus. And then Paul presses the point further in verses 15 and 16, saying we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So Paul's point in all this is that there, or is if there is no bodily resurrection, if there is no bodily resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our problems pile up. If Christ has not been raised, then our problems pile up. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is futile. The apostles and the hundreds of eyewitnesses are all liars. They are all false witnesses. And then it gets even worse than that. If Christ has not been raised, then not only is our preaching in vain, our faith futile, and our leaders are all liars, but worse than that, this world is only a miserable graveyard. If Christ has not risen, then this world is but a miserable graveyard. And that's point one this morning. If Christ has not been raised, this world is a miserable graveyard. If Christ has not been raised, then our problems pile up. And our biggest problem of all is that this world is just a miserable graveyard. It's just a place where you bury dead people. We see this graveyard in verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then, those who are those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Think for a moment with me. 
Think for a moment what our position would be if Christ had remained in the grave. He went there on our behalf. He went there as a hostage for us. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages for sin is death. The wages for sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's free gift is eternal life through his son. That's why Jesus went to the cross to bear our condemnation, to suffer our punishment. When Jesus died on the cross, he died and was laid in the tomb as a condemned man, condemned for us, condemned for our sake. And if he were still asleep in that grave, then the last word over it all would still be condemnation. The last word would be condemnation or death. If what Christ did on the cross had not satisfied the justice of God, then he would never have come up out of that grave. He would still be dead. Our faith would be futile, and we would still be in our sins. We would still be dead in our transgressions. We would be covered over them as with a crimson robe. And all who have fallen asleep, all the Christians who have died, all the confessing Christians who have already died, the pious, they would have perished. They just perished. But then... They confess their sins, they confess their faith, they confess their hope of seeing God in the face of Jesus Christ, but if Jesus has not been raised, there is no sinner who has gone to heaven. There is no saint who has any real hope. If Christ is still dead, then we die. When we die, we die under a delusion. And this world is just a graveyard. It's just a place to bury dead people. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then this world is only a graveyard for the dead, and it's a miserable one at that. It's a pitiful one at that, because, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we only have hope in this life because of Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. We only have hope in this life. We Christians, we're most to be In other words, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is only a message that makes us feel a little bit better in this life, but then we die and we just perish, if the gospel is just about giving people a little bit of optimism, if it's, as it's been called before, the mere opiate of the masses, if it's just meant to dull the pain of life and delude the truth of death, then we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christianity is nothing but just a nice distraction then the fact of the matter is, this world is a graveyard, and it's a miserable one, and we Christians are the most miserable in it. We are the most pitiful and miserable in it because we could have spent our lives eating our fill. We could have spent our lives drinking our fill. We could have spent our lives being as merry as possible, but we squandered the chance. If this world is really just a graveyard, which any honest atheist will have to confess to you it is, any honest, consistent secularist is going to have to tell you, that's all this is. We all just, we're just biological chance. We just die and we get buried. And so, so what, do you, what you do doesn't matter. None of it matters. None of it matters. Live like you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. That's the logic of secularism, which means us Christians are most to be pitied because we missed our chance to have as much fun as possible. We were too busy like trying to serve people. Why did we waste our time doing that? We missed our chance to live it up. 
We were looking for a blessed life to come, but we, we're just going to perish. What's the matter? You see what is being driven at? Everything, everything a Christian confesses, everything we believe hinges on a fact. A historic, ancient fact. But if that fact is not a fact, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. Everything we believe is a delusion. Everything we confess is a lie. We are still in our sin. Death has conquered. The world is a graveyard. And we, above all people, are most to be pitied. But. But. I got a couple people who are there. The rest of you, come with me. But this is the turning point in the passage. Verse 20 gloriously declares, but in fact, but in fact. So consider what if Christ was not raised? What if he was still dead in the tomb? Then this implication and that implication and this implication, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, but in fact, death could not hold him, but in fact, the tomb is empty, but in fact, Jesus is alive, death is defeated, love has won, and this world, this world isn't a miserable graveyard, but in fact, Christ has risen, and this world is a magnificent garden. This world is a magnificent garden. Which is point number two. I got you down in the grave and said, what if we were stuck there? Well, we're not. So let me tell you about this magnificent garden. Because Christ has been raised, this world is a magnificent garden. Verse 20 says, Christ has been raised from the dead and is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This means that Jesus' resurrection secures our resurrection. Because Christ has risen, this world is not a graveyard. This world is a garden. I mean, we still die, we do die, and when we do, our bodies are put into the grave, but they are planted there. They are planted there so that one day they can spring back up, so that one day the seed will come to life and our bodies will rise anew. So think about that for a moment. Why, think about this. Why did Christ die? Why did Christ die? Because strictly speaking, strictly speaking, a perfectly innocent man cannot die. A perfectly innocent man cannot die. It's the wages of sin are death. Right? So a perfectly sinless man is immortal. It's sin that makes us liable to death. So Jesus, all by himself, could not have died. The only thing that made him liable to death is that our sin was laid upon him. He could not die until God the Father laid our sins upon him, charged our sins to him. And when our sins were laid upon him, Jesus was declared judicially guilty, even though he was not personally guilty. He was guilty in the court of God. He was covenantally guilty. Jesus took responsibility for our sins, for since he did not commit, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And because our iniquity had been laid on him, then Jesus could die. That's why Jesus died. But then follow me here. That means Jesus could only stay dead as long as our sin was on him. 
Jesus could only stay dead. The only thing holding Jesus down was our sin charged to him. But as soon as that debt had been paid, as soon as he had gone all the way down, as soon as he had satisfied justice, Jesus could not stay dead. Jesus could not be held down. It would be like trying to keep a beach ball under the pool. You ever played that game? Kids, you ever tried to do that? You, you fill up this huge, big beach ball full of air, right? And you try to push it down under the water. And the thing just keeps trying to pop back up and it's flying up. And so you throw yourself on it, trying to hold it down. And it flips you upside down. That ball will not be held down. And Jesus is just like that. Jesus is just like that. He could not stay down. He had to come up because all our sins were gone. The penalty had been paid. Justice had been satisfied. There was nothing holding him down. So if your sin and my sin put him on the cross, and if your sin and my sin put him in the grave, but the cross and the tomb are now empty, then that means all our sin is gone. That means all our sin and shame and guilt is gone. It's all, it's all paid for. So think about what you've done. Think about the worst things that you have done. Look them in the face. What have you failed to do? Where have you dropped the ball? What have you said that you wish you hadn't said? What eats at your conscience? What do you wish with all your might that you wish you could take it back? All that guilt, all that shame, all that vile evil was laid on Jesus and it put him in the grave. It put him in the grave. But is he still there? Is he still there? No. No. Which means all your sin, all your guilt, all your shame is gone. It's all gone. It's not there anymore. God does not count it against you. You are free. You are free. You are free of it all. Listen, be encouraged by this. When we say he is risen and you say, you are not just saying Jesus died and rose again one day. You're not just saying that. You are also saying, and I am forgiven. You are saying, I paid it all. You're saying, my sin is gone. You're saying, Jesus took it all to the grave, and he came up, and I came up with him, innocent as can be, white as snow. There's nobody in the grave. Our sin has been paid for. We're fully forgiven, so he is risen. He is risen Amen. Yes. Because Christ has risen, we are totally forgiven. It's all been paid for. We've been set free. And Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus came out of that grave, he brought all of us with him in one long, glorious train. He's like Moses leading Israel up out of the house of slavery. He came up like Joshua leading the people into the promised land. Jesus is like Samson, tearing up the gates of death and carrying the bars of the grave away. He's like David, who delivered the flock of, or yeah, delivers his flock out of the jaws of the lion and shepherds them through the valley of the shadow to the green pastures and the still water. Listen, death could not hold Jesus down because all our sin was paid for. It was all gone. And likewise, that means death cannot hold you down. Death cannot hold you down. There's no sin in death to hold you down. Oh, death, where's your sting? Where is it? It's gone. It's all gone. So that Jesus is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep means, for us friends, it means that the winter has ended and the spring has come. It means the winter of this world is past, and this really is the spring of the world. 
This really is the spring of the world. The days are getting longer. The light has come into the world, and it cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped even if, even if it occasionally still snows. Even if it, and being in Northeast Ohio, we can appreciate that, can't we? Because it could have snowed this morning. I could have woken up and had snow, but we didn't, praise the Lord, but we could have. But we could have. We know that here. Spring has come. Jesus has brought it, but it does still occasionally snow. It snows in our hearts. It snows in our families. It snows in our world. There are still sometimes painful reminders of sin and death in our lives. But this is our enduring hope. This is our perennial hope that Jesus must reign. Jesus must reign. Verse 25, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus must reign. He must reign until summer has come into its own. He must re- he has brought the spring and he must reign until summer has come into its own. He must reign until everything to do with the winter of this world is put away forever and verse 26 the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed, that last vestige of winter will be death gone forever. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation 1, when the Apostle John has a vision, has a revelation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, one of the first things Jesus says to him is he says, John, I have the keys to death and Hades. John, I've got the keys. I've got the keys to death and to Hades. And if Jesus has the keys to death and to Hades, the place of death, then he has the keys to everything. If Jesus has the keys to death, the last enemy, then Jesus has the keys to all your enemies. He can unlock anything for you. Jesus has the keys. Listen, that doesn't mean that he's going to give you your best life now. That's not what the keys are for. The keys are to get you out of your sin. So he has the keys to all rage and malice. He has the keys to anger and bitterness. He has the keys to clamor and slander. He has the keys to adultery. He has the keys to divorce. He has the keys to sharp words, sulking attitudes, and sexual sin. Jesus has the keys to all lies, to every hidden sin, to every grave you can imagine. Our sins are all graves. The wages of them are death, but Jesus has the keys. He has the keys of death in Hades. He has the keys to the whole prison. There is nothing that can lie Jesus out of your life and there's nothing that can keep you locked away from Jesus everything everything that can condemn you to death everything that can send you to hell Jesus has the way out Jesus has the way out he is the way he is the truth he is the life he has the keys that can turn your graves into a garden he has the keys that can turn your grave into a garden which is a which is to say He has the keys to turn everything good in your life. 
He can work everything to good in your life. He makes even the darkest holes serve him. All things must come under his feet. He must reign, for he is Lord of them all. Therefore, we are more than conquerors in life and death. We are more than conquerors in life and death. Do you believe this today? Do you believe this today? Is Jesus your way out? Is Jesus your forgiveness? Is Jesus your hope? Is Jesus your key to life and life eternal? Do you believe that he can and that he wants to turn your miserable grave into a magnificent garden? God is the perfect gardener. God is the perfect gardener and he knows exactly where to plant us to yield the most fruit for his glory and our good. God is the perfect gardener. He plants all your life and the central way he plants you the central way he plants you is into his son. Into his son. God has planted you into his son. This is how he plants us. In Christ. Friends, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. If you're here today and you're like, what are what what is wrong with these people? How much sugar have they all had for breakfast? Like what they are hyped up and loud and crazy, and this preacher is just like a crazy man up front, and what in the world is going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of salvation. That's what we're excited about, and our hope is that it'll be your salvation. Today's the day of your salvation. That you would believe just like we have believed, that Jesus has come to save you because God loves you because God loves you and he gave up his son for you so that you could be with him for eternity. Jesus came to save you, to die the death you deserve to die, to raise again, to give you new life, new life that starts now and stretches on for eternity, always and ever with God. Let me invite the band up for this last part here as I move us towards a close. Bring the band on up, I'll move us towards a close. In just a minute, I'm going to end the sermon, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And uh, when we do that, uh, all who are Christians here, whether it's church at your home or not, you're welcome to join us. Uh, this is a place where we come. When we gather at the table, we are proclaiming Christ's death, resurrection, and his coming again. And if that's the confession of your faith, you're welcome to join us. Now, but if you're not a Christian, uh, or if you've not confessed your faith through baptism publicly yet, then we'd ask you to refrain from participating, but... Just see what's happening around you. All these people, just out of the corner of your eye, look, you'll see every one of us taking that bread and that cup. We're just saying we are messed up sinners and Jesus saved us. And Jesus is making our life new. And we hope that's your confession of faith as well. I've heard it said that Jesus' tomb is the womb of all things being made new. Jesus' tomb is the womb of all things being made new. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, there is a day coming when there will be no more sickness. There is a day coming when there will be no more death, no more injustice, no more suffering or sin. That glorious day is coming because the tomb of Christ is empty, because he has been raised from the dead, which is exactly why at the end of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul triumphantly declares, death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, he says, where is your sting? 
Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Oh, Christian, oh, church of the risen Christ, Jesus has given you the victory. Has he triumphed over your sin? Yes, he has. Has he swallowed up your death? Yes, he has. Has he borne all your iniquities? Yes. Has Jesus unlocked the door to eternal life for you? Yes. Has he turned your grave into a garden and has he promised you a day with no more pain, no more suffering, and no more death that is to come? Yes. Then thanks be to God. Yes. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not worship a dead Savior. The tomb is empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed.